It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Friday, August the 27th, 2021. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. Always pleased to have you all here. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, Monday through Friday. And if you miss any of it, the podcast is available for free at GuyBensonShow.com. But listening live, especially when there's huge news breaking, that's the way to go. Many ways to do that, including through our friends at Odyssey.com, A-U-D-A-C-Y.com. On today's show, here's the lineup. Chris Wallace, host of Fox News Sunday. He'll be here later this hour. Congressman Mike Gallagher, a veteran. Republican of Wisconsin in the next hour. Also, Andy McCarthy, a big decision last night against the Biden administration, the obviously correct decision by the U.S. Supreme Court. It was six to three. It should have been nine to zero. We'll get into that. And Dr. Nicole Sapphire on a new study that suggests that natural immunity, people who get COVID and then survive COVID, have even stronger significantly stronger immunity against COVID and reinfection than those who are vaccinated. What are the implications there? Plus, more data about kids in schools and masks. You're going to want to hear that. That's Dr. Nicole Sapphire in our final hour. Fox News alert as we begin. Let's bring you stats on coronavirus as we do almost every day. We took a break from it, a small exception yesterday, because there was so much breaking news while we were on the air. But the case count of COVID cumulatively in the United States, 38.5 million. That's an undercount. Everyone knows that. All the experts say it could be double, triple, quadruple that. The death toll in the United States is a more finite number. 634,734 Americans have died from this virus. The Dow is up nearly 250 points right now, trading well above 35,000 with the closing bell just about 52 minutes away. So a relatively strong day on Wall Street thus far. The Dow, 35,460 right now. We'll keep an eye on that. Well, there is a State Department press conference and briefing that is going on right now. The Pentagon held one earlier with the spokesman John Kirby. We also heard from Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, earlier We played you as much as we could live yesterday of President Biden and his statement and his Q&A, which I found to be very disconcerting. There was some good stuff mashed up with some very weak stuff. There was confusing messaging. There was a stilted, slow, almost lifeless delivery. There were answers to the questions that were very hard to follow. And, of course, there's the incoherent policy here. And so it's really hard to have snappy, superb, well-oiled messaging when the underlying policy and results are as demonstrably bad as they are. So one of the things that was said today 
by Jen Psaki at the White House. She was asked again about this promise. And lest you doubt that it was a promise, in fact, let's start with this, the flashback in June, President Biden to the world, speaking about Americans and American allies who've helped us in Afghanistan. Here's what he said in Cut 33. We've already begun the process. Those who helped us are not going to be left behind. You know what country they're going to move to first? I don't know that. I'll be meeting with the uh, with Ghani tomorrow. The head of, he's coming to my office. That will be discussion, but they're welcome here, just like anyone else who risked their lives to help us. Those who helped us are not going to be left behind. A clear-cut promise from the president. He reiterated that promise a week ago when he answered questions last Friday. They drilled down the press corps said, is it still your promise that we are not going to leave behind Americans and allies who helped us in Afghanistan? And his answer was yes. We've played you that sound. It's written up in every account, basically, of the president's press conference a week ago. Now, here we are today, as the deadline is getting extremely close. There are reports. I saw CNN's Jake Tapper said he's hearing from sources on the ground that the Taliban is now blocking access to the airport for Americans, Americans with U.S. passports, legal residents of the United States of America. They are now being blocked. The pullout is underway. The withdrawal of troops is underway. And the deadline for flying people out is rapidly approaching if it's not already kind of hitting. So the White House press press secretary was asked about this promise, the promise that the president has made repeatedly. And this is what she said in cut 16, or cut 30, excuse me. I don't think we can guarantee, but what we can do is work toward, and this is what the president directed the Secretary of State to continue diplomatic efforts with international partners to secure means for third country nationals, Afghans with visas who may be eligible for our programs, of course, any American citizen who remains in country to leave the country even after the U.S. military presence ends. There's a means of mechanisms for that. Those conversations are ongoing. That's our objective. Our commitment does not change on October th- on August 31st. Obviously, we need to figure out the operational mechanisms, which is the conversation that's underway. To the very beginning of that clip, she says she cannot guarantee that Americans and American allies won't be left behind. Because they will be. Because they will be. This is now basically being accepted as a fact, and what they're doing at the White House is moving the goalpost and saying, well, we hope that there will be mechanisms in place in the future when we have no presence on the ground to get people out. And I guess we're going to count on the Taliban for that. The Taliban that has one of the most wanted al-Qaeda terrorists in the world now running their security operations in Kabul. The Taliban that is hunting down people who helped us and killing them. The President of the United States made a promise and a vow, the most serious oath you can make to someone. We're going to protect you. We're going to make sure that your life is spared. We're going to get you out of this hell that we've created. And for thousands of people, that promise is just about to expire. And I think it is absolutely pathetic 
that the president would make the promise, reiterate the promise as recently as last week when he absolutely knew better. And now the promise is morphing into, well, we can't guarantee that that's going to happen, but we hope that there will be mechanisms. That's not good enough. Seth Moulton is a Democratic congressman, a war veteran. He's from Massachusetts. He was on MSNBC this morning. Here's a pretty candid answer. He was one of those who went over to Afghanistan this week. He and Peter Mayer from Michigan. Unannounced visit. Some people were bent out of shape. Oh, is it a distraction? The Biden people were mad and grousing about it. They wanted to see with their own eyes what was happening. They have reported back that there's no way we're going to keep our commitment. No way. And in Cut 27 on Morning Joe, here's his answer to a question from Willie Geis. Based on what you saw yesterday, American fighting forces have left, but we still want to get Americans out. We still want to get some Afghan wartime allies out. How do we go about that? Look, here's the blunt answer, Willie. I don't know because we don't have a plan. I mean, everything that's happening right now, these extraordinary numbers of people that we're bringing out, it's because of these heroic efforts by our troops and our State Department diplomats, young consular officers trying to sort through immigration paperwork. It's because of their heroism on the ground that we're saving so many people, not because anyone in Washington gave them a plan. We don't have a plan. It was the solemn responsibility of this administration to have a plan. And they have failed and are failing miserably. And there is a very real human cost. We've already seen it, and I fear we're going to continue to see it for some time. Now, they keep saying there's over 100,000 people that we've evacuated. And again, logistically, it's very impressive, and God bless the people who are doing it. Under these frantic, last-minute, 11th-hour circumstances. But of that 100,000-plus, the Pentagon said today 5,000 of them are American, so about 5%. And 7% of them, 7,000 or so, are SIVs, the Afghans who deserved and earned our help the most. So you put those two groups together, Americans and SIVs, that's 12% of the people that we've gotten out of there during this evacuation. They should have been at the very front of the line. Any process, any method that was even remotely competent or orderly would have had those people at the front of the line with the conveyor belt out of the country starting months ago. That did not happen. Instead, we have chaos. Right, 800 people packed into planes. Get them out of here. While there are Americans stranded, while there are people that we promised we would get them out. With the proper documentation and apparently a list of their names now in Taliban hands, there are thousands of them who are not going to get out before this deadline and may never get out. Because of atrocious leadership and planning out of Washington, D.C., and the Biden administration. There's no getting around it. I talked about the human cost. On Fox News earlier today, America's Newsroom, Bill Hemmer, Dana Perino, they had a woman living in New York City who has been desperately trying to get people out, including one translator in particular. She was on the air. They had this guy, they're calling him Carl, by phone, and it was so hard to watch. Because they were talking live, Dana was crying, 
the female guest was choking back tears. And Carl, who is being hung out to dry like thousands of others, was pretty stoic, but also sounding pretty desperate in terms of his conclusion, sort of fatalistic at this point. He said that he has been an interpreter for the United States for the last 10 years. He's in a safe house. He's separated from his family. He needs to get out of the country if he's going to survive. And he said he's not alone. Listen to Cut 28. It's not just me that I'm at this situation. I know people that they're at the same situation that I am right now. They have worked for the United States. They have provided supply for the United States. But guess what? Over there are people that are getting inside the airport that they have never worked. They knew somebody with a green card. They know somebody with a mm-hmm. passport. That's how they got to mm-hmm. inside. I know people that they are inside, but they never worked. By the way, the people with U.S. passports and green cards are reportedly, as I mentioned, no longer being allowed in. Taliban stopping them. These are U.S. passport holders now. It was revealed in this interview that Carl actually got into the airport at one point, and then we threw him out. As he says in that clip, matter-of-factly, he said there are people, and we know now, and I just ran through the stats that the Pentagon provided, people who did not work with the United States, did not help us at great risk to themselves and their families, they have gotten out. But the people who are in that situation, that we owe the most, many of them have not gotten out. Because of this catastrophic, cataclysmic lack of planning. This unthinkable failure of the United States government. And in Cut 27, he started to look back on his experience and his decisions and started talking about what he believes will be his death. Listen to but Cut 27. Good, but the good thing is that I'm not going to die for bad thing. I'm going to die for good thing. What I did, I will never regret it because I have tried to help people. It's me, always, trying to help people. Yesterday, I was doing my bed. I was clearing the most for the people. People, there were no ambulance. I took her. She died. I, I put her in the hospital. I came back, and there were a lot of traffic. I tried to clear the traffic and have civilian vehicles to pass by because it was a lot of pressure a lot and I was there you can hear some of the reactions in the background on microphone he says the good thing is I'm not going to die for a bad thing I'm going to die for a good thing he's talking about us he's talking about us and the people of Afghanistan That's the good thing that he now expects to die for. He said, I will never regret it because I have tried to help people, including us, and we made a promise to him, and our president made a promise to Carl and to thousands of others, and we're going to break that promise. We're in the process of breaking that promise, and we have some spinmeisters in D.C. trying to play little games with words and pretend that that broken promise isn't really so bad and isn't necessarily totally happening, and it makes me sick. That interview was hard to watch. And I want to play you the sound bites because I wanted to remind you these are real people at real risk who have helped us, honorable people. 
and we promised them we would get them out. I pray that Carl will get out. I pray that he does. Maybe he will. Many, many will not. And it is a national shame. We'll take a break. We'll come right back. It's Friday on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. There is still a very active terror threat at the airport in Kabul with another attack, quote, likely. That's been the reporting today. The death toll after we went off the air last night, by the way, of Americans grew to 13. And it was clarified earlier today that it was one bombing, not two. Now, the administration keeps saying, well, that was ISIS-K, not the Taliban. We don't know if there was any collusion between the two. But then there was this question earlier for the Pentagon. Listen to the exchange. Cut 32. How many ISIS-K prisoners were left at Bagram and are believed to have been released from the prison there? And why weren't they removed before the U.S. pulled out to some place like Gitmo? Well, um, I, I don't know the exact number. Clearly, it's in the thousands when you, when you, when you consider uh, both prisons, because uh, both of them were taken over by the Taliban and emptied. But I, I couldn't give you a precise uh, figure. Now, you can talk about... Trump and the negotiations that resulted in some prisoners being released, and you can criticize that, fair. John Kirby, the Pentagon spokesman in the Biden administration, just said thousands of ISIS terrorists were released by the Taliban from prisons at Bagram, which is the airbase that we inexplicably abandoned. Far too early in this process, it is still something that blows my mind that they did that. In the middle of the night, they did it. Weeks and weeks and weeks before the deadline with thousands of people who would need to be evacuated. We gave up our strategic air base. And in the process, the Taliban took over these prisons and released ISIS fighters. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. And then ISIS fighters showed up and killed our people at the airport. I, I am in awe of the incompetence and dereliction. Chris Wallace of Fox News Sunday joins me next. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. 
GuyBensonShow.com. We're back here on The Guy Benson Show on this Friday. With us now is Chris Wallace, anchor of Fox News Sunday. You can check your local listings on your local Fox station or watch the replay on Fox News Channel later in the day, 2 p.m., 7 p.m. Eastern. Also a best-selling author. He's got a forthcoming book, Countdown Bin Laden, the untold story of the 247-day hunt to bring the mastermind of 9-11 to justice, which is pretty timely given the news cycle these last few weeks. Chris, good to have you here again. Thanks for joining us. Great to be with you guys. I want to play for you a soundbite from the press briefing at the White House earlier today with Jen Psaki talking about the deadline of August 31st and why the president has been sticking to it. Cut 16, listen. Was there ever a point where the president was reconsidering this deadline of having all U.S. forces out by August 31st? No, and here's why. Uh, The president relies on the advice of his uh, military commanders, uh, and they uh, continue to believe that it is essential to get out by the 31st. That is their advice. So we hear this a lot, Chris, when there are big glaring questions like why did we abandon Bagram when we did? They punt the ball over to the military leaders and the generals. In this case, on the deadline, it has been widely reported and basically confirmed by the administration that there were some top military advisors and officials and generals, even his secretary of defense, urging him not to fully pull out along this timeline and to keep a residual force of 2,500 Americans or more. But the White House says they are fanatically wedded to the August 31st deadline because that's what the generals are telling him. He's commander in chief. I just see some tension here in terms of what is being answered by the White House and sort of passing of the buck down the chain of command versus what we know and has been reported. And I wonder what you make of that. Yeah, I don't think it's a great answer. I, you know, in the end, I think uh, I, I don't think, incidentally, the two points are are necessarily in conflict about about the generals. The generals could well have said, and I agree with you, everything I've heard is that at least Milley, the, who happens to be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, said we need to keep 2,500 forces here as a residual force, keep a lid on, on the Taliban, and also a presence for counterterrorism activities. Now, you can have had that view, and now when you're down to 5,000 troops at Kabul airport and you're a, a sitting duck for attacks by ISIS-K and other people who hate us to feel it's time to pull out of, of the airport, Exactly. Even even with that, I mean, in other words, I think both of those things can be true. And just to just to just to put pause that the president has has presented him with. But having said that, I you know I I kind of I kind of feel like the the president made the decision to do this. He should take full responsibility for pulling out. Now, I happen to think, frankly, uh, you can argue that we should never have gotten in this situation. But being in the situation we're in. I think staying beyond August 31st would be a real mistake. Well, and and that, I think, is part of the point here. On Fox News yesterday, you used a term that stuck with me. You called the airport right now in Kabul a death trap, and that feels correct. And I think the distinction that you were just making is an important one. Earlier in the process, it's clear that the president was advised, let's not do this, let's not do that. And he overrode those recommendations and said, no, we're moving forward. Once you then back your military into a corner with your decisions 
And then you say, well, now what do you think? And they say, well, now we have to do X, Y, or Z. To hand that off like it's sort of the generals all along, I just I find that to be not leadership. That's my no, view of I, it. I think that's I think that's a very good point. You 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 have, have backed them into a corner, and now you say, well, okay, now how do we get out of this? Uh, you, you know, you you pretty much have uh, limited their their options, and then to lay it off on them is kind right. of disingenuous at, at, at best. Uh, frankly. You know, I, I'm, as I'm sure a lot of Americans are, I'm scared to death about the fact that we're going to be there four more days because, you know, we are a, a, we are a target and a death trap for for uh, ISIS-K or Al-Qaeda or people in the Taliban or anybody else who wants to hit us. We've got thousands of troops there right over the, the, uh, the fence, and yep. we've got planes, military planes taking off that can be shot down with an RPG, so... I understand why we're there now for a few more days to try to get some more Americans, more Afghan allies out. But it is, as Jen Psaki said in her briefing today, you know, a very and I think she said that it's an acute threat. Yeah. And it it blew up literally yesterday with 13 Americans killed. And the real fear, the live fear is that it could happen again. And just to extend the point. Just for another moment, it's, it applies, I think, also to Bagram as well. A huge tactical blunder, according to many. I think that the leadership shoved the military into that corner on Bagram and then ultimately said, well, can we retake Bagram? Why do we do that? And they say, well, the military told us to. And Milley has indicated in some of his answers this was not his preferred plan, but he was sort of marched into it by the commander-in-chief who, at times doesn't want to sort of act as if he's commander-in-chief or, or sort of, sort of uh, hide the ball a little bit in terms of ultimately who's making the final decisions. It's obviously the president. In the meantime, Chris, we had this story, pretty explosive story yesterday from Politico that alleged that U.S. officials gave lists of American citizens and SIV holders and other U.S. allies to the Taliban because the Taliban is basically running the security operation, which is sort of a wild thing to say out loud, but that's effectively what they're doing at the airport in Kabul. And I guess the idea was it's like trying to you know get into an exclusive club. You need to be on the guest list. Here's the guest list. And the real fear, and this was expressed by officials in the Politico story, is that that will become a death list, a target list almost immediately as soon as the U.S. is gone, if it's not already. We've heard various people asked about this. The president was asked about it yesterday. He gave kind of a confirmation, but kind of not. Let's play that clip. Cut 31. And there have been occasions when our military has contacted their military counterparts in the Taliban and said this, for example, this bus is coming through with X number of people on it made up of the following group of people. We want you to let that bus or that group through. So, yes, there have been occasions like that. And to the best of my knowledge, in those cases, the bulk of that has occurred. They've been let through. But I can't tell you with any certitude that there's actually been a list of names. I know there may have been, but I know of no circumstance. It doesn't mean it's not didn't exist that here's the names of 12 people. They're coming. Let them through. 
Then today, General Hank Taylor at the Pentagon was asked about this, and here was his response to the story in Cut 23. I don't think there is sharing information, as you would say in that question of, like, we are giving information. What information is very important right now uh, is at the ground level to ensure that as people approach checkpoints, uh, that uh, those Taliban checkpoint leaders have and understand who's coming, what documentation they're supposed to have and go, because that's really important for us uh, to ensure the time that people um, are not in areas and just, you know, staying there for long periods of time. Uh, you know, the commanders on the ground are continuing to coordinate. How do we continue to increase that throughput through checkpoints, through gates to get on HKIA as fast as we can? Uh, that's very safe, you know, to get them there. All right, Chris, I played you both of those pretty long clips because you are very well known on Fox News Sunday for asking tough questions and then listening to answers as often political figures try to avoid the question that you've asked. And the question here was about the Politico story, whether it was true. Those were two answers, one from the president, one from a general. What do you make of the replies that we got there? Well, I I wouldn't. (laughs) It was really... Uh, there certainly were not straight answers, either of them, and they raised more questions than they answered. What I've heard, and I basically I've heard this from my colleagues at Fox, I haven't done any independent reporting on it, so take it for what it's worth, is that it's more what the president said, that we're giving information about buses or license plates. It's not like we're giving a list of, uh, you know, the <laughs> here were the, all the translators for us over the last 20 years. Here were all the the drivers for us over the last 20 years. If it's something that facilitates people getting through, like there's going to be a bus coming and it's got this license plate, I think that makes sense. As you say, it's a crazy situation where we're relying on the tender mercies of the Taliban uh, to get people through. But that does seem to make sense. If If it's an actual list of the names of our Afghan allies, that obviously, you know, the, the word I heard used was a kill list. Right. Uh, you know, not that it, but it, it, it inadvertently would be a kill list. And that would be, extre- seems to me, extremely reckless because you've got to assume a lot of those people aren't going to get through. Uh, and, and, you know, then it just gives, uh, if, if the United States is saying, let uh, these 10 people through when it gives their name, obviously you're giving the Taliban after we leave on Tuesday a huge head start in trying to hunt those people down. And, Chris, just to my ear, when I heard those answers, I hope that what you just described is closer to the truth here. The Politico story really made it sound like from multiple sources that there were actual lists of names. And the president himself said maybe there were lists. He, he, he wouldn't foreclose that possibility. It seems to me, and again, I'm not necessarily an expert on this, it seems to me that if the United States government did not give out lists of names of U.S. citizens and allies to the Taliban for this purpose, creating an obvious problem, the kill list, you know, it's a pretty uh, powerful and blunt way of putting it, you would think they'd be able to very aggressively deny that without these word salads. They just say, no, we absolutely did not do that. That's a very good description, a word salad. That was a, that was a lot of salad there. And, you know, uh, we think we're going to have a top administration official uh, on Sunday to take us through the last 48 hours, because by Sunday there will only be two days left before the August 31st deadline. And it's, one of them, it's on my list of questions to ask, you know, did, was there a kill list or not? Um, and I, 
I hope I'll get uh, meat and potatoes and not a word salad. Yeah, or at least some sort of a straight answer. Chris, there is obviously two different big-picture questions here. One, is it the right call to get the United States fully out of Afghanistan approximately now, yes or no? President Trump, his answer was yes. President Biden's answer continues to be yes, and obviously the process is moving forward. People disagree. People agree. We've had some of those debates on this show. It's been debated for years, our presence in Afghanistan. The second piece that so many administration officials seem to try to avoid as much as they can is, did the execution, once the decision was made, did it have to be this chaotic and terrible? And their implication seems to be, yes, it's always going to be messy. There's going to be time in the future to look back, but we're doing a great job with this airlift. It's You can't call it anything other than a success, is what Jen Psaki said. Clearly, the polling shows that the American people, while generally supportive of the policy itself, are take an extremely dim view of the way that it's been carried out. And I wonder what you think about the efforts from the administration to either pivot away from the questions about execution or kind of just say things that make it sound like, well, it's actually been pretty good and you've got it all wrong, and frankly, we couldn't have done better and no one could have. That seems like a very, very hard line to try to be selling in light of the reality that we're all seeing. Well, uh, you know, I did an interview with uh, Secretary of State Blinken on Sunday, and it was a pretty tough interview. Uh, And at at one point, you know, he talked about there are going to be after-action reports, there will be assessments, and, you know, I'm kind of fed up with that. I'm not saying that we do need to spend our time primarily on getting everybody out that we can safely, not on, you know, the after action report. But on the other hand, it is an easy way to avoid accountability, any accountability now and say, well, it's not the time to do that. And then <laughs> later on, they hope everybody will forget about it. Right. They'll say it's old you know, news. When you say when you say that that. Uh, you know, they're saying that they're that it's inevitable. The president said two different things. And I asked Blinken about this on Sunday, too, because last week in the interview with George Stephanopoulos, he basically said it, it this chaos was inevitable. And when 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 the, the, the Taliban fell, whether it was going to be before we got out or not, we just getting people out of the country was going to be uh, inevitable. But if you remember, Jack, on July 8th in a, in a press conference, uh, in the White House, he said that the idea that the Taliban was going to run amok all over uh, Kabul was not inevitable. Was large, right. you know, highly unlikely. Highly unlikely, exactly. So, so you know, they've taken two very different views on this. Uh, you know, I, I I make fun of some of the pundits who call, you know, who who opine on this with such great certainty. You know, General Wallace or General Benson, but you know, it does seem that it. The, the, just from a common sense point of view, the idea that you get your troops out first and then you worry about all of your equipment and all of the civilians yeah, basically as, as exactly backwards. Yeah, it's and, basic blocking and tackling. And I mean, it doesn't take a general to see that. Chris, briefly, last question. You mentioned the Blinken interview. One question that you asked him that got a lot of attention, you asked him point blank because of the disconnect in the rhetoric from the president and the reality. Does the president not know what's going on? Were you surprised by his answer? Because he didn't really respond to that question. No, he just said, he just said well, it's a very emotional time. Uh, I do not think it was a very good performance by Secretary Blinken. I don't think he showed much, uh, 
backbone in the interview. And I was a little surprised because I thought to myself, if I'd ask a question like that to Mike Pompeo or Hillary Clinton or go on and on and on, when you think of secretaries of state, I think they would have come back at me a lot stronger than 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 Blinken did. And, and uh, you know, you need a secretary of state who's got some uh, so, some force uh, and some gravitas and some, you know, some spine. Uh, I'm not saying that Blinken doesn't have spine, but I thought that it was a weak performance on his part. So on Sunday, just quickly, because I know you're about out of time, we're going to have a top administration official, the latest on the ground, 48 hours before the deadline, and then an exclusive interview with Senator Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican leader, very critical of how the president has executed this. We'll be watching with great interest. Both of those interviews will be must-see TV Sunday morning on Fox News Sunday with Chris Wallace. We'll have to talk about your upcoming book next time. Chris, looking forward to the show. Thanks so much for spending uh, some time here with us. Thank you. My pleasure, Guy, as always. You bet. And we'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. With Fox News Podcasts Plus, you can enjoy all your favorite Fox News Podcasts without commercials. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. Back here on The Guy Benson Show, we're keeping an eye on a briefing ongoing right now at the Pentagon. More updates as they unfold. I want to bring you a little bit of political news as well. This from the home front. It is now over in Texas. After the whole fleabagger stunt, where the Texas Democrats got on the chartered planes, not wearing masks, had their little beer party and their super spreader events, they hung out in Washington, D.C., right, and celebrated each other and sang We Shall Overcome, and a few of them went on vacation to Portugal. The stunt has now failed. It's over. Quorum has been achieved. And the Texas election law has passed the Texas House by a vote of 80 to 41, and it will become law. I'd love to know what they think they achieved, these Texas Democrats, but it is over, and the bill has passed the Texas House. Congressman Mike Gallagher joins us about Afghanistan. Straight ahead. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It is a brand new hour, our middle hour, here on The Guy Benson Show, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, every single weekday. Bonus Benson on the weekends on the podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News alert. The Dow closes in the green today. In fact, it was a record day on Wall Street. The S&P 500 and the NASDAQ registering record closes. The Dow ends up 242 points to 35,000. 455. So a good end of the week on Wall Street. Joining me now is Congressman Mike Gallagher, a Republican of Wisconsin, their 8th Congressional District in the Badger State. He serves on the House Armed Services Committee. He's a military veteran. And Congressman, it is great to have you back here on the show. 
it's great to be back with you. So yesterday we saw 13 American service members killed in a terrorist attack and dozens of others uh, killed on the ground as well in Kabul. You have been and several of your colleagues colleagues have been urging the House, which is on recess, to come back into session and to work on this issue uh, and, and pursue some legislation on Afghanistan. The Speaker of the House spent some of her afternoon yesterday at a rally in San Francisco where she was laughing and joking. She did not reference uh, these deaths. This was happening after the attack had been widely reported. Here's just a little taste of what the Speaker of the House was up to yesterday in Cut 24. Here we are 101 years later, women in positions of high uh, responsibility, but an attack on the the right to vote that is happening in our country. A few days ago on Tuesday in the House of Representatives under the leadership of Terry Sewell, a woman from Selma, Alabama, we passed the John Lewis Voting Rights Enhancement Act to offset the damage that the courts are doing to the right to vote. So she was talking at some women empowerment rally. I'm not exactly sure what it was, but That is how she spent her day yesterday, railing against Republicans and supposed attacks on the right to vote. And I just wonder, as a member of the House and someone who has served, what you think of those priorities? I mean, what planet is Pelosi living on at this point? I mean, I was astounded. I was on the House floor because I had the bill on the House floor to require the administration to report to us on the number of Americans left in Afghanistan and prevent them from withdrawing until we'd gotten every American. And every Democrat voted against it because they didn't want to endanger the $5 trillion authorization for the Bernie budget plus the infrastructure bill. And as I was getting ready to speak and lead the debate on Afghanistan, Speaker Pelosi came to the House floor and delivered this truly insane 30-minute diatribe talking about what a proud day this is for America. We're giving universal pre-K and this and that, and we're going to fund every progressive priority domestically. No mention about the ongoing disaster in Afghanistan, the fact that she's continued it in the intervening days, even after we just witnessed the deadliest day in a decade. 12 Marines dead, one sailor dead. I mean, an absolute tragedy made all the more tragic because it was entirely avoidable. I, I just I'm stunned by the speaker's priorities and the complete lack of urgency with which she's addressed this issue in Afghanistan. And finally, I'd say, Guy, There are a lot of Democrats who behind closed doors have been critical to Biden administration. But when the time came to vote on this bill, which I think is a common sense bill, they all cave to Pelosi, uh, who doesn't want anything to endanger their domestic progressive priorities. It really was a shameful week in the U.S. House of Representatives. And the speaker is completely out of touch with where the American people are, because I think the American people are grieving. The American people are angry. They're upset. They feel humiliated, and their heart goes out to the families of the fallen right now. Did you get a chance to watch the president yesterday? I did. Well, I listened to it while I was I was driving. I was uh, flying, traveling back from D.C., and I, you know, I I, I thought you know his 
his sorrow for the fallen was sincere. I'm not trying to question him on that. But yet he persisted with a lot of odd uh, things. Well, one, he, he's continued to double down on this August 31st withdrawal date uh, and deflect any blame for the fiasco of the withdrawal. This attempt to suggest that it was the military that told him Bagram had no value is a lie. The military was given an arbitrary troop uh, cap number and then determined that they couldn't secure both the embassy and Bagram. So that was another lie to add to two weeks of lies from the Biden administration. And by the way, they didn't secure they didn't secure the embassy anyway because that got evacuated. That's right. That's right. So come September 11th. 2021, a Taliban flag is going to be flying over our brand new $800 million embassy. That insult to injury. Um, and then this idea that, you know, it is in the Taliban's interest. We have mutual interest. I don't think Biden has the foggiest conception of what's in the Taliban's interest. I mean, we think we have leverage because the Taliban wants humanitarian assistance and a workable airport post August 31st. That's crazy. I mean, the Taliban want having witnessed us surrender so quickly and embarrassingly, the Taliban wants to make this surrender as humiliating as possible. And in my opinion, it is in the Taliban's interest to take as many Americans or Afghan allies hostage to slaughter all the infidels that worked with the evil crusader Americans. That is what's in the Taliban's interest. And we are going to create a massive hostage situation in Afghanistan. And we are, if we stick to this deadline, we're going to be leaving hundreds of Americans behind and thousands of our Afghan allies. Worse, we're going to condemn that latter category to death. We are learning from the Pentagon's own numbers today that the overwhelming majority of people who have been evacuated, right, they keep bragging about their numbers, about this big airlift of a, of a crisis that they created with just shockingly horrible planning. But they're like, oh, look, the numbers keep growing. 100,000 people. They admitted that only 7% of them are SIV holders. Only 5% of them are U.S. citizens. So that's, you know, back of the envelope, Matt, that's 12%. 88% were other Afghans who got out. Many of them, I'm sure, are very relieved to be out. I'm sure many of them are great people. But a, a plan, an effort to do this in an even remotely credible, incompetent way would have had the SIV holders and the American citizens at the very front of the line. That obviously has not happened here. And as we descend into further chaos with the clock ticking, it looks like some of the people who have earned, thousands of the people who have earned our obligation to get them out are going to be abandoned and stranded and I don't understand how you can look at that as anything other than an admission of failure by the U.S. government when, and the Biden administration when it comes to the execution of their decisions here in Afghanistan. Guy, I just left Fort McCoy in Wisconsin about 30 minutes ago. I'm driving home. We did a, a tour of the base. This is one of the facilities where we are uh, taking Afghan refugees after they enter the country and pass through a port of entry in Dulles, and I was actually shocked to learn there's about 3,000 Afghans there. Of those 3,000, precisely zero are SIV holders. Uh, now, it's possible the SIV holders are going through a different facility. Um, we obviously have people that are made through the SIV application process, SIV 
It looks like we've lost the congressman's cell phone there. point he was making is an illustration of the stat that we've now given a few times on the show today. If you've gotten 100,000 people out of Afghanistan and 88% of them, the overwhelming majority of them are not Americans or SIV holders, that's like the, the most elite level of Afghan that we need to protect. Our interpreters, our drivers, people who fought alongside the United States at great, great risk to themselves, who the Taliban, it's not like they might want to go kill them. They are already hunting and killing them now. Those people should have been at the very tip of the spear in a months-long operation done with precision as opposed to the frantic operation that we're seeing now. And if 88% of the people on that, you know, coming out on the airlift do not fall into the category of SIV or American, I'm not you know, saying that those are bad people or you know, we should be afraid of them or anything like that. I am saying that it is an abject failure of planning in terms of American obligations. And, Congressman, I think we have you back. You were saying that of the Afghans, thousands of them in Wisconsin at this location that you're talking about, none of them were SIV holders. And, again, I just I cannot conceive of how someone with a straight face can look at that reality and say, Yes, we have done the best we possibly can. No one could have avoided this sort of disaster. Um, and don't call into question our contingency planning. It, it seems more reasonable to call into question whether there was any contingency planning at all. There was no contingency planning. Yeah, that's, that's what we were told at this base. No SIV holders. No real plan for people that are midway through the SIV process. I got the sense that we're sort of making this up on the fly and our soldiers there are doing a great job i you know we saw them playing with afghan children they're going above and beyond to create a hospitable environment and so they're not in charge of the vetting a lot of the vetting is happening at these so-called lily pad facilities or at the ports of entry but you know having urged the administration for months to get a plan for the sivs the very real sense i get is that the state department dragged its feet was completely caught unaware, and now Why? we are just, Why? I think they... I, well, I have two theories. One is it's just pure bureaucratic intransigence and incompetence and a failure to understand how quickly the security situation could unravel, such that they felt we might have a few months to deal with this and the Taliban would, would, would have a, a process in place. Two, they believe that post-August 31st, um, they can build a, a bridge, is what they've, they've told me, that the Taliban, because they want humanitarian assistance and they want um, a functioning aircraft, will help them put in place a process that allows us to continue to get our Afghan allies out. I think that is incredibly naive. And the, the idea that the Taliban can be relied upon to let uh, Afghans who worked with the Americans or fought with the Americans against them is incredibly naive. Um, and the third is, I think there is a, a, a at least a faction in the Biden uh, administration, as much as they like to paint all Republicans as xenophobic, who fears that there is a political liability from letting a bunch of Afghans into the country. So I think it's a combination of those three things. Yeah, I mean, we hear a lot of hand-wringing on the left and focus on this, what I find to be a very odd term here in the United States about the well-being of black and brown bodies it is sort of a buzz term on the left. It seems like these brown bodies... Um, there doesn't seem to be uh, too much 
concern about a very ugly fate that awaits many of them because of the failures of this administration. I want to ask you, Congressman, the Politico report that came out yesterday alleging multiple sources saying that we gave the Taliban. I mean, first of all, the Taliban is running security at the airport, which is mind blowing. It was just a few weeks ago that the president said the Taliban was not going to take over the country. Now they've taken it over so thoroughly that we are relying them to run security operations, a terrorist organization at the airport from which we're trying to get our people out with the clock ticking. I'm just I'm just astounded by that. And on top of it, the Politico report said that in order to try to get some of the people through, we gave what officials are now referring to as a a death list, names of people to let through the checkpoints. The concern obviously being that once our military is out in a matter of days, those lists could be then weaponized and used to go out and hunt people down and murder them. Uh, We've gotten like quasi-confirmations, but half-denials about that story from the president and from other officials. What are you hearing? Um, I have requested officially through the Armed Services Committee that the military or just the administration in general confirm or deny the report. So I can't tell you right now that um, it it is confirmed. But if it's true, I think it it will go down as one of the stupidest decisions of the last 20 years. I mean, what, what idiot thought that that would be a good idea to give the Taliban, the group that has been fighting us for 20 years, a kill list is incompetence of the highest order. Now they may retort that, well, this, that we had to do it because, you know, we have this one entry point. We only have one exit point for the entire country and the Taliban are. Yeah, that's their security, fault. So, that was their plan. Yeah, they put us in that position. <laughs> they put us in the position of being entirely dependent on the Taliban, the good graces of the Taliban for security and in so doing endangered American lives, Afghan lives. This is one of the most incompetent operations I have seen unfold, uh, including my time on active duty uh, in the Marine Corps. And obviously it's resulted in absolute tragedy. Um, And again, your heart just goes out to the families of the fallen. So a lot of unanswered questions. The Congress is going to have to step up and hold a lot of people accountable. I think certain people are going to have to resign. Uh, There's going to be a thorough investigation. Uh, But this is just a very embarrassing and tragic moment for the United States of America. Yeah, and I think the wages of these betrayals plus the incompetence are going to be seen now for days, if not weeks. And I think we're going to have our stomachs turn over and over again. I hope that's not true, but I fear that it will be. Congressman Mike Gallagher, Republican of Wisconsin, member of the House Armed Services Committee and a veteran, Congressman, appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Guy. It's the Guy Benson Show, and we will return after this short break. The Guy Benson Show. More next. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Back here on The Guy Benson Show. Coming up, Andy McCarthy will join us on a significant Supreme Court decision handed down yesterday that corrected just a grave decision by the Biden administration and the president himself. We will get into that coming up. Also, I just want to bring you this back on the home front. Headline from The Wall Street Journal, White House more than doubles its inflation forecast in new update. 
Administration expects consumer prices to rise 4.8% in the fourth quarter from a year earlier and lifts projections for growth this year. Sort of an oh, by the way. Meanwhile, here at home, this is the White House and the Biden team's own projection. They've more than doubled their inflation forecast. That affects you. That affects your family. And so this sort of transitory thing that'll smooth over very quickly, maybe not so fast. And usually the White House projections are rosier. I'm seeing now there's a new scoop from the New York Post, which is just horrifying, that biometric tools that the U.S. has in Afghanistan, now in the hands of the Taliban, that can check people's identities based on their eyes and that sort of thing, that's being used by the Taliban, our own technology that we abandoned, In this hasty retreat, they say they plan for every contingency. What a lie. It's being used by the Taliban as they hunt down Americans and our allies. And people won't be able to hopefully get away or lie because there'll be proof. This is another failure that's going to get people murdered. And there was an awful story today about what's happening to LGBT people at the hands of the Taliban. They're getting murdered. I wonder what the woke folk have to say about that. Annie McCarthy, coming up next... You don't want to miss this interview. Straight ahead on The Guy Benson Show. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back on the Guy Benson Show. Happy to have you here. Halfway through the Friday edition. Of course, we've been talking almost nonstop about Afghanistan for all the obvious reasons. There are other significant stories out there, including last night a decision from the U.S. Supreme Court that we predicted many people did. In response to President Biden's flagrantly unconstitutional decision to extend the eviction moratorium, We talked about this a few weeks ago. Biden had indicated himself that he thought was an illegal move, that he didn't have the authority constitutionally to do what he did, but then he shrugged his shoulders and did it anyway. He said maybe this will buy us some time. That was after the big overnight hunger strike, without the hunger part, from members of the squad. And the Supreme Court, unsurprisingly, has struck down that decision from Biden 6-3. to In my view, it should have been 9-0. to It was glaring. Joining me now to talk about this and analyze it is Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. His most recent book of many is Ball of Collusion, at Andrew C. McCarthy on Twitter. Andy, good to have you back. Guy, great to be with you. So break this down for us. I mean, I am not an attorney. You are. I'm not a constitutional scholar. You are in many ways. I read this story weeks ago from a layman's perspective and said, okay, this seems like an obvious violation of the Constitution, thwarting the Supreme Court, sort of thumbing nose at the Supreme Court from the president. I suggested that perhaps it would be called a constitutional crisis if, for example, it was the previous president doing something precisely like this, now the question has come before the court again. The decision has come down six to three, not allowed. 
Tell us what you make of it. Well, Guy, I think for a non-lawyer, you did hit the main point, which is that the surprising thing here is that this was not a nine-nothing decision. This is really not an abstruse legal issue. It's one that's pretty straightforward, I think, for people to wrap their brains around. Uh, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, um, can only operate to the extent that Congress gives it a statutory mandate to operate. Uh, Congress has not given it authority to impose or to in any way interfere uh, with contractual relations between uh, landlords and tenants. Uh, and in order, I think it was really to impose a, uh, a progressive policy in most blue cities, the, uh, you know, landlords are the, uh, are the evil party. Um, and I think they used the pandemic as an excuse to stop landlords from being able to evict tenants uh, who didn't pay their rent. In many instances, who could have paid their rent, uh, but, but uh, chose not to because the regulation was in place. There's no statutory authority for that. Uh, so when it was challenged in court, uh, in any number of places, courts found that it was an invalid move by the CDC, including, Guy, I should point out, the most important court to rule on the merits of this, because even the Supreme Court hasn't ruled on the merits. It was ruling on an injunction, which is like a preliminary stage. The most important court in America that's uh, reached the merits of it is the Sixth Circuit Federal Appeals Court, which says that there's no uh, legal authority for it. So it was pretty clear that it was illegal. The Biden administration knew it was illegal. Uh, the first time the Supreme Court um, ruled on this in the injunction context, uh, it should have invalidated it. Instead, uh, by a 5-4 decision, it allowed it to continue. But Justice Kavanaugh, who concurred in that, um, departed company with his uh, four conservative colleagues on the court and said he was going to leave it in place only because it only had about four weeks to run. And he thought that might be more efficient as far as the government getting the aid that was in the pipeline to, uh, to people who needed it to pay rent. But even he said in doing that, that if it was going to continue one minute after it was to expire at the end of July, you would need clear statutory authorization for it. Biden Congress. knew that. The White House knew that. They didn't have it, and they did it anyway. And they have Democratic majorities in Congress. They didn't have the votes even within their Democratic majorities. Forget the filibuster. They didn't have the votes even on a party line basis to pass something like this. The squad, Cory Bush, a few others, made a lot of noise. Cory Bush spent a night camped out in Washington with some snacks, hanging out, demanding action. And the leadership in Congress, the Democratic leadership, sort of looked at each other. Pelosi and Schiff saying, all right, we don't have the votes. What do we do here? And Biden decided to just cave and do something that he admitted was not legal to appease this flank of his party and to do the bidding of this obviously pretty influential backbencher from this left-wing club, the squad, and in doing so, ignored what Justice Kavanaugh had written. So the case got back to the Supreme Court in pretty short order, and this time it was a 6-3 to slapdown saying, no, if you're going to do this, Congress has to do it. I think it's a terrible policy on the merits. I think if we had a debate in Congress about whether or not the government can interfere with private contracts between two parties and force landlords not to evict 
tenants who are deadbeats, who aren't paying, who are abusive and all sorts of different things. I think that's crazy unto itself if this were being debated as legislation. But what the Supreme Court essentially said is if you're going to do something like this and impose it in the United States of America, Congress has to write a law. You cannot have the CDC just doing it and screaming emergency and setting a national policy like this, which should be obvious to me, Andy. And that gets back to this concern that I have that the three leftists on the court, the three so-called progressive justices, all sided against the Constitution. I, I mean, that's a pretty blunt way of putting it. But Justice Breyer, for example, in his dissent, included a COVID chart about cases in the United States, which is an interesting public policy argument, but it is not a constitutional argument. And yet, I think it's sort of a window into the way that some people approach constitutional law that they would believe that to be anything close to a rigorous legal point. Yeah, Guy, that's exactly right. And I think it really hits on something that's, that ought to be discussed more and is, uh, is much missed, which is there's a lot of uh, left-wing carping about the fact that we have a conservative majority on the court, whether it's a 5-4 or 6-3 majority, we can debate. But it's clearly a more conservative Depends on the day. Court. Right. It depends on what side of the bed that uh, 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 Chief Justice Roberts gets up on most of the time. Right. Right. You know, the thing is, when when you have a liberal leaning court, what happens is they impose progressive policy preferences by saying that they are commanded by the Constitution. And when a court does that, that's almost impossible to get reversed unless the court reverses it. Because you're, not, you're almost never going to amend uh, the Constitution on the basis of a, of a court decision. Uh, very difficult to amend the Constitution. And the legal position is that Congress can't, with a statute, uh, overturn a constitutional decision of the Supreme Court. So when you have a left-leaning court, they impose their policy preferences. The conservative court, for all the complaints about it, they're not saying you can't have an eviction moratorium. What they're saying, as you just described, is you have to do it in the constitutional, democratically accountable way under circumstances here where the Democrats control both houses of Congress and the White House. What what the Supreme Court is saying is you want to do this, pass a law. Uh, And in fact, if they were hewing to the conservative originalist position, um, they would be saying, which they're not saying, uh, that the. Commerce Clause wouldn't allow the federal government to do this at all. So they're not using the Constitution to force uh, even an originalist position, let alone a conservative policy preference. What they're saying is you can have whatever progressive policies you want to have. You just need to follow the Constitution and pass a law. And that's not good enough for the left. They want it imposed. No, it, it never is. And you, the reason you, you said. And you've got Kagan and Sotomayor and Breyer effectively acting as justices AOC, Cory Bush, and Ilhan Omar, saying, yeah, we like this idea, and therefore it doesn't really matter what the law or the Constitution says. We want this to just be allowed. For the CDC, the CDC director, Super President Rochelle Walensky, to be just setting national policy on rent and eviction, it's totally crazy. It is very good news, obviously, that this decision went down the way that it did that President Biden has been slapped down by the court six to three, 
and hopefully he'll really abide by it this time and avoid a full-blown constitutional crisis. I think he probably will. But again, the concern that I have is it was only six to three. And should the Democrats win a series of presidential elections and the court shifts back in a leftward direction, this is the type of activism that could become a majority if conservatives aren't careful and if we can't persuade the country to elect Republican presidents. I mean, that that's what the political stakes are here. And the three dissenting votes, I think, are just a little preview of the radicalism that would follow should the court no longer be conservative. But thank goodness, with President Trump and Leader McConnell and the work of the last few years for now, it is a 5-4 or 6-3 conservative court. And I hope that it will stay that way. Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor. Thanks for that legal analysis. We appreciate it. Thank you, guys. We'll be right back after this on The Guy Benson Show. Get a fresh take on the biggest stories of the day. It's Guy Benson. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Back on The Guy Benson Show, we've been bringing you a lot of really rough and difficult news out of Afghanistan over these last two weeks of shows. I do want to bring you some good news and relay a story that reflects the greatness of so many of the men and women who serve this country in the armed forces. Brave, courageous, honorable people. So we knew and they started to realize that an awful lot of Afghans who helped us, i.e. helped them for years, were going to be left behind. That is the reality right now, and it's going to happen. It is unavoidable at this stage, which is a disgrace. It is a national disgrace. But rather than just shrug or seethe or complain, a bunch of veterans of our special forces got together and decided we are going to do something. So operating without official blessing or orders, they launched a rescue mission quasi-privately, these are veterans, in Afghanistan to rescue as many people as possible who helped them, these SIV holders. They called the project Task Force pineapple and it started in mid-august because there was an afghan commando who had served alongside the green berets our green berets the taliban had identified this afghan commando they were trying to find him they were sending him death threats and it became obvious if the taliban found this man before we did he was going to be executed on the spot and so our guys our special forces veterans decided they were going to intervene and save him and they did and they said okay let's try to do this as frequently as we can until we can't anymore and so basically think of the underground railroad but for Afghans who helped us trying to get out of there and what this group was able to accomplish is rescue an estimated 630 Afghan veterans and their families who were delivered safely to the airport. 
Now, there are many thousands, unfortunately, tragically, appallingly, who will be left behind. But because of this focused action of these warriors, that number is lower than it would have been. Ala Pundit, writing at HotAir.com, says, It's a comfort to know, in the middle of this still-unfolding national humiliation, that at least some still believe in no man left behind. ABC News has the play-by-play of this, and it will be a movie. I mean, it's just amazing, the drama here. Quoting now, The effort since the Afghan commando was saved in a harrowing effort, along with his family of six, reached a crescendo this week with dozens of covert movements coordinated virtually on Wednesday by more than 50 people in an encrypted chat room. Described as a full night of dramatic scenes rivaling a Jason Bourne thriller unfolding every 10 minutes. There is one engineer, a few conductors, as well as people who are performing intelligence gathering duties. The intelligence was pooled in the encrypted chat group in real time and included guiding people on maps to GPS pinpoints and pin drops at rally points for them to stage in the shadows and stay in hiding until summoned by a conductor, quote-unquote, wearing a green chem light, ABC News learned. Once summoned, passengers would hold up their smartphones. These are passengers on the Underground Railroad. They would hold up their smartphones to show a graphic of a yellow pineapple on a pink field. That was the signal. Many of the Afghans arrived near Abbey Gate at the airport and waded through a sewage-choked canal toward a U.S. soldier wearing red sunglasses to identify himself. They waved their phones with the pineapples and were scooped up and brought inside the wire to safety. Others were brought in by an Army Ranger wearing a modified American flag patch with the Ranger Regiment emblem, sources told ABC News. So in the last 10 days of this operation, about 130 Afghans were saved. But with the clock ticking, and it became pretty obvious to everyone that the last flights were going to leave in relatively short order, at which point this whole project would be dead, in one night, this group mobilized to get 500 Afghan assets in their families in one night on a Wednesday. And some of it was really scary. Cell phone service dropped at one point. People were worried. Were they stranded? Was the Taliban on to them? The whole narrative is absolutely extraordinary. Now, in the ABC News piece, one of the former SEALs, one of the Navy SEALs, former, who participated in this, said, quote, in complaining, our own government didn't do this. We did what we should do as Americans. Another retired SEAL said, leaving a man behind is not in our SEAL ethos. Many Afghans have a stronger vision of our democratic values than many Americans do. So these guys obviously are still furious at the government who didn't do this stuff. They took it upon themselves with no real authority to do so, just moral authority. An incredible capability and profound courage. And they went out and they did this. And there are hundreds of people who will not be killed as a result. Imagine if we didn't have to do this. Imagine if we had a plan in place for months in an orderly fashion to get people out, especially the ones who need it the most, who've deserved it the most, who've earned it the most. Imagine if that is what we had instead of this heroic, amazing 
private operation that fills me with pride, but also fills me with anger that this was not done by the government, by the administration, in a sensible, timely way, which could have happened, but it didn't. God bless these people for doing what they could. It's more that can be said of a number of other people calling some of these shots. And you know exactly who I'm talking about. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show. Coming up, don't go anywhere. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by The Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Final hour here on this Friday edition of The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for being here been a bumpy ride this week and last week, but we really appreciate you listening. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. The podcast is always free of charge, including bonus Benson on the weekends. GuyBensonShow.com. Happy hour sponsored by the Finnish long drink. So good. Really refreshing. Alcoholic. So 21 plus only, please. Always drink responsibly. Log on to TheLongDrink.com. You can find out where it's sold near you. They are expanding rapidly. You can also order online, thelongdrink.com. With me now is Dr. Nicole Sapphire, who's a board-certified medical doctor, senior Fox News medical contributor. Her most recent book is Panic Attack. Doctor, good to have you back. Hi, Guy. Thanks for having me on. So I want to talk about two issues with you related to COVID today. Both of them are interesting. Something that you have talked about time and again in our many conversations together about COVID and the pandemic and public policy as we try to wade through some of these issues is natural immunity because the vaccines are very effective. They are very safe. We've talked about that many times. We've both encouraged people to get vaccinated for all the reasons that I hope to most people are obvious at this point. Obviously, some folks aren't fully on board yet, and the goal is to get them on board. However, there's another form of immunity out there against COVID-19, and that is the form of immunity, antibodies, developed in the bodies of people who got COVID, were infected, and then recovered from the illness. And one of the questions that's been out there is, how powerful, how strong is natural immunity? And there's a new study, a big one, a very large study out of Israel, still awaiting peer review, so there's a little asterisk there, but It indicates that natural immunity, people who have survived COVID, that protection could be up to 13 times stronger than people who have the vaccine alone. The most powerful combination, they say, is vaccine plus natural immunity, which I happen to have because of my breakthrough case. But for people who have been through this disease, this study would suggest that there's very, very robust immunity against COVID moving forward. And I wonder what you think of that study and what the implications are if its findings are confirmed. 
Well, you know, Guy, so this latest data coming out of Tel Aviv, as you mentioned, it's non-peer-reviewed, but it looked at over 16,000 people um, with about 300 infections. And what they found was that you had about a 13 higher risk of a breakthrough infection following vaccination than if you had natural immunity and so you were reinfected. But what I actually found interesting, I like that they broke it down even further. They broke it down to symptomatic infection and you had about a 27 higher risk of a symptomatic a breakthrough infection following vaccination, then reinfection following infection. And so this begs the question, why here in the United States do the CDC and other elite institutions still fail to recognize prior infection or recovery as a form of immunity? And I'll tell you guys, I don't know. I don't know if they've gotten themselves so far down a rabbit hole that they are fearful of the retribution and the backlash that may come from them if they finally start to acknowledge natural immunity. Listen, a year and a half ago, we didn't want it to be a free-for-all. We, we didn't want everyone to go out and get infected because we didn't know much about the virus. But now we have ample data. And that ample data, not just out of Tel Aviv, but elsewhere, even Cleveland Clinic and other places, do show the robust protection of natural immunity. Will it wane over time? Sure, it may. But so does vaccine-induced immunity. And these are things that we have to deal with. But ultimately... When you, when you are exposed to SARS-CoV-2, because everyone's going to be, given how contagious Delta is, it would be great to have some level of immunity in you. And, you know, that may come from vaccination. But if you have recovered from prior infection, you are just as protected, maybe even more, than if you're fully vaccinated. See, to me, that's very significant. And I don't want that to be misconstrued as talking down the vaccines at all. Because the vaccines, and, I mean, we've gone through the data how many times? Like this would be our umpteenth conversation about how amazingly effective the vaccines are against symptomatic illness, especially against severe cases, hospitalization and death. It is really, really good protection. And having the vaccine versus being unvaccinated prior to having any COVID infection, it is night and day in terms of the likelihood of bad outcomes. And that's why the vaccines are so important, so effective, so safe. I don't want anyone to say, oh, look, they're citing this study to badmouth the vaccines. That's not true at all. But it is true that if we are thinking about how to set public policy about coronavirus in the middle of a pandemic and we're going to ask people or force them to get vaccinated or show some form of identification or prove that they've been vaccinated, I think it is a relevant piece of the conversation to say, well, if we have some pretty robust data here, that the protection from natural immunity, getting COVID and recovering from it, is quite likely even stronger than the vaccine alone. That should matter. Right? That's sort of my take on this. Well, and it goes farther from that. But what you're ta- you are absolutely right that it is about what are we doing with policy. You're talking about children being back in school, adolescents, college students, and yet they have to be they're having vaccine mandates. We don't actually have the data to show if an adolescent who we know has a higher risk of vaccine-induced myocarditis, if they've recovered from COVID-19, have the antibodies, and then you vaccinate them, will they have an even higher risk of myocarditis because they already had that primed immune system? The answer is we don't know. But yet they're still saying that these children have to get the vaccine following natural infection. And I'm not saying they shouldn't get it. I'm just saying 
before we start mandating this, we should probably have the data that shows the safety in it. And if if they even need it at all, because natural immunity in this young, healthy population may be enough. Speaking of kids going back to schools, there's a New York Times story out today, and I want to give them credit for writing it because there's a lot of media outlets that are kind of ignoring the science because everyone has stampeded over. I call it superstition. Right? They say masks have to work on children in schools. It just makes sense, and anyone who disagrees hates science, hates children. We'll talk about that a little bit more in the next segment coming up. But the Times has a story headlined today, in Britain, young children don't wear masks in school. Subheadline, during the Delta surge, British schools emphasized other safety measures, quarantining and regular testing for the virus. Quoting from the story, throughout the pandemic, government studies showed infection rates in schools did not exceed those in the community at large. There were often multiple introductions, meaning that infections were likely acquired outside the building, meaning outside of schools. Masks in classrooms were required only for discrete periods in secondary schools, like middle schools and high schools, and were never required for elementary-aged children. Both conservative and labor parties, so both of the major parties in the U.K., have generally believed face coverings hinder young children's ability to communicate, socialize, and learn. That is the experience in the U.K. based on what they have seen, what their data shows. They've reduced the masking in schools even further. That was news earlier this week. And yet any American politician that adopts this policy based on actual data is almost roundly condemned by a lot of people in this country as being hostile to science and eager to see children get infected and die. Doctor, I don't even know how to respond to that at this point except to send them links, send people links to stories like this. It should, again, to echo my previous point, this should matter. Data should matter. So how can we say in the same vein to encourage adults to get vaccinated, stating that we have ample safety and efficacy data, which we do, but yet then also say that two to five-year-olds should be wearing these cloth masks where we actually have no data? Because if we want people to trust us as experts in science, then we have to be able to back it up by data. But if you listen to mainstream media, if you listen to politicians, they are putting as much weight into adult vaccination as they are young children wearing masks. And the data is not there to support young children wearing masks. Yeah, Yeah, it's not even close. Dr. Nicole Sapphire, our guest, senior Fox News medical contributor, her most recent book, Panic Attack, Playing Politics with Science in the Fight Against COVID-19. Doctor, appreciate it. Talk soon. Thanks for having me, Guy. And I'm not quite done on this. Some sound that I want you to hear next. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Back on the Guy Benson Show, I want to pick up sort of where we left off with Dr. Sapphire about policy, schools, mitigation efforts against COVID-19. This week, for example, the governor of Oregon, who's a left-wing Democrat, she put in place a mask mandate outdoors for vaccinated people and also unvaccinated people. But outdoor mask mandates, if you're in a crowded space or with a group of people outdoors, Even if you're fully vaccinated, you have to wear a mask. There's no science behind that. There just isn't. 
being outdoors is very safe. That's why I did not object, for example, a few days ago when the video emerged of Speaker Pelosi at that high-dollar fundraiser in Napa Valley with a bunch of Dem donors sitting all right, basically on top of each other, having a lunch outside. They were almost certainly all vaccinated. They were outdoors. This is very safe. Now, there are double standards, right? And I said on the air that if you're going to say that's safe because of the data, you should also follow the data and the actual science on other questions, such as masking children in schools. But it was not unsafe or contrary to the science to have an outdoor event like that. And yet in Oregon, the Democratic governor says we're just going to put masks on people outside as well, even if you're vaccinated. It's crazy. Even some very ardent progressives were questioning delicately, golly, is there any science for this? No, there's not. I've described this before. There's like an arms race of safetyism where they want to appear like they're doing something and they're going to one up the next person. Oh, yeah, well, you did that. I see your anti-science panic-inducing power grab, and I raise you this one. So it looks like the governor of Oregon might be in the lead, at least here in the United States right now, not based on anything scientific, which brings us back to masks in schools, which I mentioned yesterday. The reason that I focus and almost fixate so much on this is because it is a proxy fight over whether or not evidence actually matters. And here in the United States, with many in the media and sort of the consensus among tastemakers is that, no, the evidence doesn't matter on this. The superstition is masks on children work. It's pro-science. It's pro-child. And if you disagree, you're against all of those things. And we've mentioned at great length the reasons why, at the very best, that is a highly dubious set of assertions if you want to look at actual data and evidence, as we have, as others have as well, not just conservatives. And yet the examination of that evidence falls on deaf ears, is broadly rejected because there are political attacks to be made against the bad people. And if the evidence in any way might vindicate or at least make understandable their decisions whether it's Ron DeSantis in Florida or Greg Abbott in Texas, well, that's not acceptable. And therefore, let's not look at the evidence. Let's disregard it. Let's close our eyes to what's happening elsewhere in the world, and let's just stamp our feet and insist, based on the power of repeated assertion with a huge echo chamber, that the science says one thing even if it doesn't. And an example of this mentality aired on CNN just the other night. Don Lemon had this to say, basically questioning the fitness of any parent who objects to their child being masked in schools, in classrooms for eight hours a day, cut 15. Just because you can't have kids does not mean you should. Yeah, I said it. And it would be funny if it weren't for the fact that people's lives are at stake. The misinformation, the lies, they're killing us. To the extent that he's directing that at parents who object to mask mandates in schools, the misinformation and lies are actually in his column of the argument. I am not powerfully opposed to kids wearing masks in schools. 
I don't think that it's necessarily ideal. I think that parents should have a choice. The data from around the world suggests that masks on kids are actually not statistically helpful. That should matter. I'd rather have kids in schools with masks than not in schools at all. And the crowd that believes that they are so, so right about this and that parents are unfit, maybe you shouldn't have kids if this is how you feel, that group of people were cheerleading school closures last year as the safe thing, even though that was not backed up by science. Now they've moved to this talking point, ever certain, totally, absolutely convinced of their righteousness to the point that anything else, including actual evidence, that cuts against it is misinformation. I try to have the humility of saying, I don't really know. If we get a whole flood of evidence that with Delta or whatever, masking kids in schools is very helpful, then great. Present it, I would change my mind, probably very quickly. Except we haven't seen that. We haven't seen that at all. The UK had their Delta wave before ours. They've had schools open without masks for months. It has gone very well for them. In fact, the UK government put out a directive and new guidance this week, updated school guidance. This is based on their data, and they have a lot more than we do in terms of tracking this under their system based on their data, based on their experience, their actual lived experience over there. They've just gone through it. Quote, our priority is for you, talking about the schools, to deliver face-to-face, high-quality education to all pupils. The evidence is clear that being out of education causes significant harm to educational attainment, life chances, mental and physical health. Later in the document, face coverings are no longer advised for pupils, staff, and visitors either in classrooms or in communal areas. They're going the other direction on masks in schools. While we have a bunch of people running around screaming that if you don't support mask mandates in schools in America, you are going to kill children and you hate science, in the UK that's just been through all of this, they already didn't require masks for students in classrooms. There were masks on teachers. There were masks in common areas like hallways. They are now relaxing that guidance in the U.K. saying we no longer advise staff members to wear masks or for pupils to wear masks even in the hallways. They're moving in another direction based on their evidence and their data, which a whole lot of people in this country insist on pretending doesn't exist. And it's a weird superstition to me. And I think some people may just have this instinct that masks must work and therefore we must do it because they actually want to help children, that's probably true. But that instinct should run up against actual evidence, especially considering that a lot of experts believe that masking kids for hours on end could be harmful in some important ways to kids. But the other side of this is also political. I firmly believe that. I believe it more than ever. Masking children in schools is a way to attack political figures that they want to attack no matter what, and they are not going to allow anything, certainly not data or evidence, to get in their way. The Guy Benson Show continues after this. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. As we continue here on the Guy Benson Show, it is Friday. Glad to have you along. Earlier in the program, back in our first hour, We welcome back to the show Chris Wallace, anchor of Fox News Sunday. 
We talked about, of course, Afghanistan, the fallout, the implications, and much more. Here's part of my conversation with Chris Wallace. I want to play for you a soundbite from the press briefing at the White House earlier today with Jen Psaki talking about the deadline of August 31st and why the president has been sticking to it. Cut 16, listen. Was there ever a point where the president was reconsidering this deadline of having all U.S. forces out by August 31st? No, and here's why. Uh, the president relies on the advice of his uh, military commanders, uh, and they uh, con- continue to believe that it is essential to get out by the 31st. That is their advice. So we hear this a lot, Chris, when there are big glaring questions like why did we abandon Bagram when we did? They punt the ball over to the military leaders and the generals. In this case, on the deadline, it has been widely reported and basically confirmed by the administration that there were some top military advisors and officials and generals, even his secretary of defense, urging him not to fully pull out along this timeline and to keep a residual force of 2,500 Americans or more. But the White House says they are fanatically wedded to the August 31st deadline because that's what the generals are telling him. He's commander in chief. I just see some tension here in terms of what is being answered by the White House and sort of passing of the buck down the chain of command versus what we know and has been reported. And I wonder what you make of that. Yeah, I don't think it's a great answer. I, you know, in the end, I think uh, I, I don't think, incidentally, the two points are are necessarily in conflict about about the generals. The generals could well have said, and I agree with you, everything I've heard is that at least Milley, who happens to be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, said we need to keep 2,500 forces here as a residual force, keep a lid on on the Taliban, and also a presence for counterterrorism activities. Now, you can have had that view, and now when you're down to 5,000 troops at Kabul airport and you're a, a sitting duck, attacks by ISIS-K and other people who hate us to feel it's time to pull out of, of the airport. Yeah, exactly. Even, even even with that, I mean, in other words, I think both of those things can be true. Right, and just, to, just, to, that, just to put pause... That the president has, has presented him with, but having said that, I you know, I, I kind of... I kind of feel like the, the president made the decision to do this. He should take full responsibility for pulling out now. I happen to think, frankly... Uh, you can argue that we should never have gotten in this situation, but being in the situation we're in, I think staying beyond August 31st would be a real mistake. Well, and and that, I think, is part of the point here. On Fox News yesterday, you used a term that stuck with me. You called the airport right now in Kabul a death trap, and that feels correct. And I think the distinction that you were just making is an important one. Earlier in the process... It's clear that the president was advised, let's not do this, let's not do that. And he overrode those recommendations and said, no, we're moving forward. Once you then back your military into a corner with your decisions, and then you say, well, now what do you think? And they say, well, now we have to do X, Y, or Z. To hand that off like it's sort of the generals all along, I just, I find that to be not leadership. That's my view of it. I think that's I think that's a very good point. You 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 have, have backed them into a corner, and now you say, "Well, okay, now how do we get out of this?" Uh, you, you know, you you pretty much have uh, limited their their options, and then to lay it off on them is kind right. of 
disingenuous at, at, at best. Uh, frankly, you know, I, I'm as I'm sure a lot of Americans are, I'm scared to death about the fact that we're going to be there four more days because, you know, we are a, a, we are a target and a death trap for for uh, ISIS-K or al-Qaeda or people in the Taliban or anybody else who wants to hit us. We've got thousands of troops there right over the the uh, the fence, and yep. we've got planes, military planes taking off that can be shot down with an RPG. So I understand why we're there now for a few more days to try to get some more Americans, more Afghan allies out. But it is, as Jen Psaki said in her briefing today, you know, a very, and I think she said that it's an acute threat. Yeah, and it it blew up literally yesterday with 13 Americans killed. And the real fear, the live fear, is that it could happen again. And just to extend the point, just for another moment, it's, it applies, I think, also to Bagram as well. A huge tactical blunder, according to many. I think that the leadership shoved the military into that corner on Bagram and then ultimately said, well, can we retake Bagram? Why do we do that? And they say, well, the military told us to. And Milley has indicated in some of his answers this was not his preferred plan, but he was sort of marched into it by the commander-in-chief who at times doesn't want to sort of act as if he's commander-in-chief or, or sort of sort of uh, hide the ball a little bit in terms of ultimately who's making the final decisions. It's obviously the president. In the meantime, Chris, we had this story, pretty explosive story yesterday from Politico that alleged that U.S. officials gave lists of American citizens and SIV holders and other U.S. allies to the Taliban because the Taliban is basically running the security operation is sort of a wild thing to say out loud, but that's effectively what they're doing at the airport in Kabul. And I guess the idea was it's like trying to you know get into an exclusive club. You need to be on the guest list. Here's the guest list. And the real fear, and this was expressed by officials in the Politico story, is that that will become a death list, a target list almost immediately as soon as the U.S. is gone, if it's not already. We've heard various people asked about this. The president was asked about it yesterday he gave kind of a confirmation but kind of not let's play that clip cut 31 and there have been occasions when our military has contacted their military counterparts in the taliban and said this for example this bus is coming through with x number of people on it made up of the following group of people we want you to let that bus or that group through so, yes, there have been occasions like that. And to the best of my knowledge, in those cases, the bulk of that has occurred. They've been let through. But I can't tell you with any certitude that there's actually been a list of names. I know there may have been, but I know of no circumstance. It doesn't mean it's not didn't exist that here's the names of 12 people. They're coming. Let them through. Then today, General Hank Taylor at the Pentagon was asked about this. And here was his response to the story in Cut 23. I don't think there is sharing information, as you would say in that question of, like, we are giving information. What information is very important right now uh, is at the ground level to ensure that as people approach checkpoints, uh, that uh, those Taliban checkpoint leaders 
have and understand who's coming, what documentation they're supposed to have and go, because that's really important for us uh, to ensure the time that people um, are not in areas and just, you know, staying there for long periods of time. Uh, you know, the commanders on the ground are continuing to coordinate. How do we continue to increase that throughput through checkpoints, through gates to get on HKIA as fast as we can? Uh, that's very safe, you know, to get them there. All right, Chris, I played you both of those pretty long clips because you are very well known on Fox News Sunday for asking tough questions and then listening to answers as often political figures try to avoid the question that you've asked. And the question here was about the Politico story, whether it was true. Those were two answers, one from the president, one from a general. What do you make of the replies that we got there? Well, I I wouldn't (laughs) – it was really – uh, there certainly were not straight answers, either of them, and they raised more questions than they answered. What I've heard, and I basically I've heard this from my colleagues at Fox, I haven't done any independent reporting on it, so take it for what it's worth, is that it's more what the president said, that we're giving information about buses or license plates. It's not like we're giving a list of, uh, you know, the <laughs> here were the, all the translators for us over the last 20 years. Here were all the the drivers for us over the last 20 years. If it's something that facilitates people getting through, like there's going to be a bus coming and it's got this license plate, I think that makes sense. As you say, it's a crazy situation where we're relying on the tender mercies of the Taliban uh, to get people through. But that does seem to make sense. If it's, if it's an actual list of the names of our Afghan allies, that obviously, you know, the, the word I heard used was a kill list. Right. Uh, you know, not that it, but it, it, it inadvertently would be a kill list. And that would be, extre- seems to me, extremely reckless because you've got to assume a lot of those people aren't going to get through. Uh, and, and, you know, then it just gives, uh, if, if the United States is saying, let uh, these 10 people through and it gives their name, obviously you're giving the Taliban after we leave on Tuesday a huge head start in trying to hunt those people down. And, Chris, just to my ear, when I heard those answers, I hope that what you just described is closer to the truth here. The Politico story really made it sound like from multiple sources that there were actual lists of names. And the president himself said maybe there were lists. He, he, he wouldn't foreclose that possibility. It seems to me, and again, I'm not necessarily an expert on this, it seems to me that if the United States government did not give out lists of names of U.S. citizens and allies to the Taliban for this purpose, creating an obvious problem, the kill list, you know, it's a pretty uh, powerful and blunt way of putting it, you would think they'd be able to very aggressively deny that without these word salads. They just say, no, we absolutely did not do that. That's a very good description, a word salad. That was a, that was a lot of salad there. And, you know, I, we think we're going to have a top administration official uh, on Sunday to take us through the last 48 hours, because by Sunday there will only be two days left before the August 31st deadline. And it's one of them, it's on my list of questions to ask, you know, did was there a kill list or not? Um, and I, I hope I'll get uh, meat and potatoes and not a word salad. Yeah, or at least some sort of a straight answer. Chris, there is obviously two different big-picture questions here. One, is it the right call to get the United States fully out of Afghanistan approximately now, yes or no? President Trump, his answer was yes. President Biden's answer continues to be yes, and obviously the process is moving forward. 
People disagree. People agree. We've had some of those debates on this show. It's been debated for years, our presence in Afghanistan. The second piece that so many administration officials seem to try to avoid as much as they can is, did the execution, once the decision was made, did it have to be this chaotic and terrible? And their implication seems to be, yes, it's always going to be messy. There's going to be time in the future to look back, but we're doing a great job with this airlift. It's You can't call it anything other than a success, is what Jen Psaki said. Clearly, the polling shows that the American people, while generally supportive of the policy itself, are take an extremely dim view of the way that it's been carried out. My full interview with Fox News Sunday anchor Chris Wallace available on our website, GuyBensonShow.com. So is the free podcast, Every Day No Charge On Demand. We recommend that if you miss any part of the show. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your free podcasts. It's been a really hard week. Our home stretch is coming up. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Friday. It has been a brutal week of brutal news cycles, but we've made it through together. I deeply appreciate your listenership and hearing from a lot of you in these last few weeks. And when the news is really tough, hard to stomach, it can be a challenge coming on the air and being accurate and composed, and we really try to be both of those things. I remember right after 9-11, everything seemed to stop for days. And back at that time for many years, the host of The Daily Show was Jon Stewart. And whether you like him or hate him or whatever, he was entertaining, very quick. The show was hugely successful. After 9-11, I remember he did his first show back And he said, I don't really know what I can even say. And he brought out a box of puppies onto the desk. He said, let's just enjoy these puppies. And yesterday was National Dog Day. And so as we end the show today, I'm a dog lover. Many of you are as well. I hear from you sometimes in my tweets and my DMs asking about Roy, our Bedlington Terrier. We love him very much here. And he is not an emotional support dog for us, but sometimes, unofficially, he is. That's with the barrage of horrible news that we can't turn away from because we're covering it for you. Sometimes just being able to take a break and scratch him or take him on a walk, and he's just blissfully unaware of what's happening, and he just counts on us and loves us so much, it's... It is kind of therapy. We are, and this is a very mundane detail of our lives, but we are getting a new bed. And so last night we did a big run to Target and Bed Bath & Beyond. We were getting some stuff. The bed frame arriving today. We had to disassemble the bed frame last night and move it to another floor, move the mattress. And so Roy could tell some big things were happening. And a little dog's universe, a little dog brain, that's the bed where he always sleeps. What's happening? Where is it going? After it was completely moved, he walked into the master bedroom and sort of looked around. He was startled. Where's the bed? Even though he had watched us moving it piece by piece. 
and he's just kind of been pacing around. Sometimes wagging his tail, sometimes sniffing, he's confused, something's up, his instinct is telling him. He can't really tell if it's good or bad. Now all of a sudden there's a new bed frame, but it's not a bed frame that he can get on yet because there's no comfy mattress, and he's a little confused, and it is adorable watching him try to figure out what's going on. And so on National Dog Day, amid another week of searingly awful stories, I just want to talk about my gratitude to man's best friend. In my particular case, for Adam and me, it's Roy. You might have a dog in your life. And when you need to step away and enjoy the little things and some simple pleasures and the unbelievable blessing that we have to live here and not to be over there right now in unspeakably desperate straits. I don't know, something about spending some time with Roy today with the TV on, laptop open, monitoring everything. He was like a little bundle of normalcy and cuteness. And I needed it. I don't really need an excuse to love on Roy and talk about him on the air, but he doesn't know it. He'll never know it. But he really earned all of the scritches and treats. And this whole week, especially yesterday. Love your dog. Hug your loved ones. Be grateful to be an American. And pray for the people who are in real serious danger. We don't know how the weekend is going to play out. We'll be watching it very closely. And we will have full coverage and details on the Monday edition of The Guy Benson Show. Good night. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. This is Jimmy Fallon inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.